Right, we've been looking at the transformation of the Christian church through the wrong teachings of the early church fathers. We've seen what the early church was, how it was established by the apostles. Remember, the apostles were unique. Jesus, and you'll find this in John's Gospel, had promised them an anointing of the Holy Spirit which was for them only. It is true, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth and he will lead us into all the truth in that he enlightens the word of God to us. But what was quite unique in that promise to the apostles is that when Jesus said, look, he will you know, lead you into all truth, he will take what is of me and give it to you. The point was the apostles were going to receive from the Holy Spirit after Jesus went back to heaven all the teaching that he hadn't given them and that he wanted them yet to have, including all the teaching about the blueprint for the church. Remember Paul, who was an apostle born out of time, where did Paul get his teaching from? Well, Paul tells us at one point he went to heaven. He got it from the Lord in heaven. He got it directly from Jesus. So when we look at the way that churches were set up in the New Testament period, in the apostolic period, we are seeing that churches were set up the same. Peppered throughout Paul's teachings and things like that. Th you know, things like this. As in all the churches of the saints. If anyone is disposed to be contentious, let him realise that we have no other practice. Things like that. You see, churches were planted to all be the same, and we've seen the basic constituents, what I've called the, the minimum requirements, if you like, uh, to have um, a biblical church. And notice as well that I'm very careful in my terminology. Like many people, I do not speak of house churches, especially. Indeed, the only time I've used the phrase house church was when I was indicating that house churches can be totally unbiblical, the same as Baptist or Anglican churches. Because at their heart, they can be wrong in every aspect except that they meet in a house. I use the terminology of biblical church. Now, a biblical church will indeed be a house church. But there's more to being a house church, a, a biblical church, than merely meeting in houses. Now let's remind ourselves of, of this transformation, of exactly what happened through the early church fathers. We've seen that the foundational error that they introduced was to change the nature of leadership. They turned it into an hierarchy. They, separate, they put a divide between leaders and led, so we had the, the, the clergy laity thing. And of course this struck at the absolute heart of the church because immediately the effect it had was to stop it from being a family and turned it into an organisation. And the organisational aspects of it grew and grew and grew while the family aspects of it were all the time being cut back and back and back and back and back until they were completely gone. So it was this introduction of an hierarchical church government. It started off being priestly. Um, but you can have an hierarchical church government that isn't priestly. You know, perhaps his pastor can say, no, I'm not a priest. He's standing up there acting like one, probably dressed like one. A lot of them have dog collars. They certainly do in England. But to all intents and purposes, it's the same. And so this divide, this leader and led thing, and the idea that you can have men in charge of the church, and even worse, that you can have one man over overall authority. There is one man in overall authority and he's in heaven and his name is Jesus and he is also God and that's why I trust him to be in overall authority. I wouldn't trust anyone else, I wouldn't trust any of you and if I was you I sure wouldn't trust me. 
And that's why all the safeguards of plurality, co-equality, and the fact that if we ask the question, in a New Testament church, all right, there you've got the elders. Who are the elders accountable to? Well, the church, like the rest of the churches, because they're just part of the church. You see? So there's none of this horrible unapproachability. Or, oh, yuck. So they changed the church from the top down. This led to making the church an organisation as it grew. It became multinational. So rather than each church being independent, localised, it just became you know, smaller parts of this organism that just grew and grew and spread all over the world. So we now have a multinational corporation. Family has gone. Family has gone. We started with family. Now you just join this institution, this corporation. You buy shares into it. It was called collections. <laughs> Baptism, your very entry into the Christian church. I mean, if you really want to mess with family, mess with birth. Mess with birth. Get someone born wrong. See? It'll damage them so much, they'll never be able to be part of a family properly. They messed with how you got born again. Because when you get born again, you should get baptised. Freely. Immediately. With that sense, I've become a Christian. Jesus has welcomed me. They mess with it, and in two ways. A probationary, a probationary period first. So people began the Christian life on probation. They heard a gospel that Jesus freely uh, forgives, and it's grace. And then they said, right, prove your repentance, bud. They were put into a legalistic atmosphere from the word go. They were born again on the pretext of a gospel of grace and then immediately they were treated as if they had to earn that ongoing salvation. The exact opposite. Then eventually that got dropped or some people hung on to it and then there was infant baptism. So now you didn't get born again at all or you did when you were a baby. That church as the New Testament envisaged it is gone. Church membership was introduced. Um, and again, normally through baptism, your baptism was the way in. And of course, at the end of the day, the whole thing about the baptism, joining a church, and the sign on the dotted line, and baptismal preparation, it's all a kind of a thing. Okay, yeah, yeah, you can be part of us. We don't want trouble. We don't want disagreement. We don't want our leaders threatened in any way. We want you to sit down. We'll give you a pew. Keep it warm. Thrown into passivity. And the other side of that was because people, Christians, were thrown into passivity, it cut off accountability in their daily lives. The scourge of Christianity has been the great gulf between what as Christians we say we believe and how we live day to day. And that is because we have lost accountability. But I'm not talking about the accountability of authoritarian church movements. I'm not talking about having your shepherd who's responsible for your life and you don't make a move without his say-so. I'm talking about the accountability that exists in a family of people who love each other. And part of God's plan, I mean, Blinder and I, I mean, we have Bethany and a, a part of our relationship with her is that here and there we have to correct her, we have to teach her, we have to train her. It's a very small part most of the time. We, we just have fun together. But here's the point. God has designed it. Children do need discipline and they do need to be brought up properly. You don't have to teach a child to be bad. They'll figure out that on their own. You have to teach a child to be good. But God puts them in a situation so that the people doing it are the people who love them. You see? 
correction, discipling is in an atmosphere of one, unconditional love, and two, where you are being discipled amongst a group of people who are all your peers. They are not your superiors. You see the difference? So it's just like family. Everything God does is family. And a church is a family so that people get born again, they become little babes in Christ and they grow up so that they're discipled, they're taught, they're nurtured, they're corrected and it's all done in a family. The early church fathers destroyed that. And church membership just had the effect of making sure that you were manageable when you came in. Now I'll tell you something. If you want an easy Christian life, stay well away from anything remotely biblical. Because in a biblical church, you won't have an easy time. You are called to love people unconditionally. There is a time, sadly, for church discipline. There can be a time for the ending of a relationship until such time as someone changes. But most of it, that's extreme. Most of it is you just think, oh, good grief, how much longer do we have to put up with this? And when you think that, the Lord says, no, I've brought them along, not so you can disapprove of them, but because I'm using them to show you what I've still got to do in you. Now start loving them unconditionally. So if you want an easy ride, stay away from biblical churches. I do not recommend them in the slightest. The free, communal, completely unstructured worship and sharing, no one leading, no services, no one up the front, that coming together, that just hanging out, just going as the Lord leads you, all that was thrown out and replaced by a service led by your leader. Alright? The focal point was a man. It wasn't the Lord anymore, it was a man. And rather than the church taking part, it sat back passively and merely watched. So from spirit-led to man-led, what a horrible thought. But that's what happened. The Lord's Supper, Sunday family dinner, because that's what it is, became a bread and wine service tacked on to the main service. Shudder. Private homes, which was where they met, gave way to special buildings. When Augustine, sorry, not Augustine, what am I talking about? When Constantine claimed to be a Christian, I'm not interested at this juncture whether he became a Christian or not, but when the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian, he outlawed all the pagan religions, and all the pagan religions had all their temples. Christian, the Christian church was unique in the ancient world by not having religious buildings. People even thought they were atheists, because if you haven't got a building for your God to live in, you can't believe in one. The Christians just met in homes, because it's all they needed. A church should only be a small number of people because if it was a big number of people you couldn't do what the church is supposed to do. Open worship, sharing the Lord's Supper as a full meal. So they never needed big buildings. That's why they didn't move into them. But when Constantine became a Christian, or claimed to, by that time every other part of the blueprint was gone. Church leadership, as the apostles taught, was gone. Open worship was gone. The Lord's Supper as a full meal was gone. Family, extended family of God life was gone. So when Constantine said, well, hey, you have all the pagan temples, in they moved. Everything, and the last, the last vestige of biblical church life 
was lost. Now that's what happened. That's what the tradition of the early church fathers did. Now the point that we must underline and really get hold of here is that what matters here isn't how far you take these traditions. What matters here is the mere fact that you observe any of them at all. The Catholic Church is much deeper into all this than the Anglican Church. But the Anglican Church is much deeper into all this than the Baptist Church. Who are maybe here and there a little bit deeper into all this than the Pentecostal Church. So we have a spectrum. We have way down deep in it. We have not quite so way down deep in it. But the point is this. Whether you're talking about the Catholic Church at right the other end of the, the extreme end of the spectrum, or whether you're looking at, say, a Southern Baptist Church at more this end of the spectrum, what I want you to realise is they are all going against the Bible at every point of the biblical blueprint. What's the opposite of coming together on the Lord's Day in a house? Not coming together on the Lord's Day in a house? Now, whether you're not coming together for Lord's Day in a house in a Catholic church or a Baptist sanctuary, what's the difference? What's the difference? It's not a family gathering. What's the opposite of having open, spirit-led worship with all three to take part? Indeed, so that Paul expected and wanted everyone to take part. What's the difference? What's the opposite of that? Having a service. Does it matter whether it's a, a, a liturgical Catholic Mass? Or whether it's a big Pentecostal service? Led from the front by the minister? It's the same error. What matters is not whether you're diving in the deep end or merely jumping up and down in the shallows. You're still in the wrong swimming pool. What's the opposite to having the Lord's Supper as a full meal? Not having the Lord's Supper as a full meal? Again, whether it's the Catholic Church with its blasphemous mass or... Pentecostal church, a Baptist church, an English free church. Very casually handing out a loaf for everyone to tear a bit of and a glug of juice and then you all go home. It's still the opposite of what the early church did. They had a meal together. So can you see at all these points it doesn't matter whether you're in a church that is weighing to it or a church that is not so weighing to it. If a church is into it, it is going against what the Bible teaches. Let me give you a parallel from moral conduct. And this is a parallel. I'm not saying having unbiblical practices is in the same league as this parallel. But if you've got a church that's very immoral, say like the Corinthians, and then you've got another church that's a little bit immoral. What should both those churches do? Repent and become moral. Being very moral is wrong. Sorry, being very immoral is wrong. 
but so is being a little bit immoral. Right? The degree is not the point. The immorality is. Now again, I'm not saying that to have unbiblical practices is the same as being immoral. I'm not saying that. I'm drawing a parallel. But again, a Christian who fornicates weekly is as out of fellowship as a Christian who fornicates daily. Can you see the point? The issue is not the degree. The issue is not the frequency. The issue is not the intensity. The issue is the going against the word of God, whatever. That's the issue. And a church with some degree of unbiblical practices is as much in need of correcting as a church with loads of wrong practices. Now, look, let's go back to leadership. Whether it's Pope, Bishop, Priest, Baptist Minister, Pentecostal Pastor, Senior Elder in a house church. The same false teaching is in each of those setups. It's not more wrong to have an ecclesiastical bishop in charge than it is to have a Pentecostal pastor in charge. What's wrong is to have someone in charge. That's what's wrong. That is what the early church didn't have. Why? To reduce the chances of deception. What did we see with the early church fathers? They went against that. It's rather like they said, hey, look, here's a car. It's got airbags. Wow, it's got seat belts. Hey, it's got ABS braking. It's got all these safety features built in. Wow. I don't want that. I want this wrecker over here with no safety features built in. And then they get in it and have a crash. Now, the rules, the teaching in the Bible about leadership had all the safety features built in to protect against the eventuality of deception. The early church fathers disconnected the airbag. They cut the, uh, they cut the seat belts out. They, they disconnected the ABS braking. They removed all the safeguards and they put in their place an hierarchical system. What happened? Mass deception. You see? They ignored the safety measures built into the apostles' teaching and they paid the price because what they were being protected from happened to them and deception flourished. When the Bible teaches something, there are a hundred ways to go against it. There are more ways than that to go against some things. What matters is not how you go against what the Bible says. The issue here is why are you going against what the Bible says? That is the issue. And the tragedy is the Christian church has spent 1900 years dividing off and fighting each other over which alternative to apostolic tradition is the best. There should have been no alternative to apostolic tradition. It is what the Bible taught. And if we had stuck to it, oh, how different church history would have been. But we can't do anything about the past. But our responsibility is what we do when we leave here today.
So the thing is, to go with unbiblical church traditions is wrong. It is to participate in things that go against the word of God. A church either has or is moving towards plural, co-equal, male, non-hierarchical, homegrown eldership, or it has a different method of government. Doesn't matter what the different method is, it's against what the Bible teaches. Our alternative to God's will is not the point. How dare we think we can have one? If I said to you, hey, I really think that Paul got some things wrong. I've come up with much better ideas. Well, you'd probably put me in a straitjacket and toss me into the street, and I wouldn't blame you. So, so why do you follow the teaching of the early church fathers then? Aren't they just human like me? See? You can't say that is unbiblical in that instance we're not going to have anything to do with it that's wrong and you're arrogant to teach it when we're part of churches that are totally against what the Bible teaches itself that's an inconsistency that we must deal with baptism is either when you're converted or it's when you're born as an infant. It's not both. It's one or the other. And baptism is either immediate on conversion or it's delayed for some reason. You can't do both. It's one or the other. But if you decide the other, you're rejecting the one that the Bible teaches. When we come together on a Sunday, we can either all take part... Or we can be in a service with certain people taking part. But not the freedom for everyone to take part. You can do one or the other, but only one is what the Lord wants. The other one is what he doesn't want. And I know he doesn't want it, because it was never taught in the Word of God. The Lord's Supper is either a full meal, or it's something else. And if you go for the something else, you're not going for what Jesus wants. Let me just run through a list of things. It's not comprehensive, it's not exhaustive. But a list of things that as Christians we rather take for granted. But which all are not just unbiblical, they are anti-biblical. Because by definition they are anti-biblical because they have displaced what the Bible teaches. Let me just run through a list. Priesthood, as practiced in a clergy-laity divide, totally wrong. Special dress, dog collars, clerical vestments, special titles, reverent so-and-so, right reverent so-and-so, very, very reverent so-and-so, His Holiness. Wrong. But non-priestly leadership that creates hierarchy, that's wrong as well. Anything with one man at the top, whether locally or nationally. 
anything that embraces a stand-apart authority that is an authority of position. Indeed, you do not have to be a leader in a church that believes in priests to stand there in your clerical garb, your special clothes. You're still a reverend. You're still pastor so-and-so. Completely wrong. Not just not what the Bible says, totally against what the Bible said. Jesus specifically said that you are not to use titles of each other in the family of God. Because we're just all one family. Set worship or worship led from the front in any way. Wrong. Not just unbiblical, but anti-biblical. Because the Bible teaches that when the church comes together on the Lord's Day, it's wide open for everyone to take part. Infant baptism. Wrong. But baptism classes. Wrong. Denominationalism in any form. Any hierarchical networking together of churches, whether institutional or house churches, is wrong. Each church in the New Testament was simply an independent entity. And I'll tell you why. They related across churches. Of course they did. But the reason that each church had an autonomy was because Jesus was the senior elder of each church. And you need your brothers and sisters. Of course you do. Churches need other churches. But let me tell you this. At the end of the day, all you need is Jesus. And that is true of the church. And as soon as you start... I'm not talking about churches working together at common purposes. That's fine. But doing so under an hierarchy. That's what's wrong. Because you're saying that Jesus is only the head at the top of the pile above whoever's at the top. No, he's the head of each church. Peter called him the chief shepherd. Jesus is the senior elder of every church, or should be. Bread and wine communion services. Wrong. Not unbiblical. Anti-biblical. Where's the meal? And if the meal was there, it wouldn't be a bread and wine service. Now, would it? In fact... Any services. They didn't have any. Special buildings. John Zenz was very keen for me to put pulpits and sermons in. Let me do it here. No pulpits because no church buildings. There goes the pulpit. But I'll tell you, the sermon goes right out the window as well. Shall I tell you why? How can you have when you come together, each one has, if the whole thing revolves around someone they're preaching? The early church didn't have sermons. That's not to say there wasn't a time for lecture format teaching such as we're doing here now. But this is not a church meeting. This is not a Lord's Day meeting. We are not a local church. We're a gathering of the wider body of Christ and in that sense we're the church. But the point is on the Sundays when the churches came together each person was supposed to take part. Imagine the idea of someone coming and saying right, okay, the Lord's going to speak through me only today. That's the very thing that Paul's teaching in Corinth was going against. What do you mean the Lord's just going to talk through you? The Lord will talk through his body. Okay? So any services. 
So there goes the sermon. Any form of church membership, signing on the dotted line, you know, and just no way. Um, you know, kind of the, the, the covenant forms. Oh, well, oh, we're going to need your money. I'll tell you the tragedy of the modern church. This might well have been true of the church in the past. I don't know my main experiences of the church now. The church, at every point, has stood on its head with these false teachings. When the Bible talks about men who are raised up, who have a special ministry, it says that they are gifts to the church. So in theory, hard to believe I'm a gift to you today, right? But the point is, I'm supposed to be here for your benefit, right? But what we've done today is we have men with the ministry. And churches exist for their benefit. The plebs in the pews are the ones providing the money to make those men richer and more famous and more influential. And don't say that's not true, because if it isn't true, why does everyone do it like that? When was the last time you met a pastor of any church who, when they moved on, it was to a tiny one from a big one? <laughs> Why is it always to an even bigger one? And this is what, we've reversed everything. And of course the point is, the church collection is the way they get the money to do what they're trying to do. Can I tell you something staggering? The early church didn't take collections for itself. There's no tithing. Nothing was passed round. Collections were taken by churches, but only for the benefit of other people, never for themselves. I'll tell you something else about people in full-time ministry in the church as well. In, in, under the apostolic blueprint, they were free. They didn't cost anything. They didn't charge. They were free at the point of delivery. Paul condemned people who peddle God's word. I have no salary. I do nothing to get money. You know, if, if I'm asked to go somewhere, I just go. If that means buying a ticket to America, I just go. Now, how the Lord, that's entirely up to him, but the point is ministries are free. I'm not salaried. When it was put to me about coming here, I didn't say, well, of course, I'm going to at least know that you're going to cover the air for nothing. Just, it was right and I came. And if I left Seattle and hadn't received anything and ended up paying for the whole thing myself, it would be a joy. And God will provide. Because I pray to Him. I wonder how many churches, how many ministries could survive if they lived by faith. As they should. I, I don't mean live by faith and prayer letters. I don't mean faith and hints. I don't mean faith in collections. I've never sent out prayer letters. I've never asked for money. I've never arranged expenses. I've never said, well, I'm going to need this, that and the other. I've just gone. And Belinda and I pray that the Lord will provide. And he does in marvellous ways. But can you imagine how many churches will survive? We'd soon find out which ministries the Lord was backing then, wouldn't we? <laughs> Religious buildings. Places of worship churches what does the word church mean the Greek word is ecclesia it means a group of citizens called out together to make decisions that, that, that was the origin of the word we call churches buildings you know I mean you know what's it like sitting over there on that helicopter 
Oh no, it's a chair. Well, so why call it a helicopter? Yeah. You know, well, hi, come and meet my Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's a dog. Oh, so? So? I'll use what word I like. It's ridiculous. We even mess with the language. We talk about buildings as if they're churches. It's a nonsense. So therefore, why? Why, oh why, do we hang on to it all? Let's let go of it. That's, that's the challenge. But you see, we've got to get over this thing, this nagging thing all the time, that somehow all the wrong way of doing church, or I'm saying it's the wrong way, got to get over this thing about, well, you know, the Lord's somehow in it. You know, that somehow it's, it's, it's what the Lord wants. Okay, so we accept that, uh, okay, it's not biblical, but we've got to get over this thing about, um, you know, kind of somehow the Lord wants it. I, I showed you that Jesus, when people were directly going against the revealed word of God and would not change when it was put to them, he called it hypocrisy. Now, let me say, it is not hypocrisy to discover you're doing something wrong. I, I, I would define my Christian life of what I'm finding out I'm still doing wrong. Right? But hypocrisy is when you realise that something is wrong from the scripture and rather than putting it right, you try and justify it. That's hypocrisy. And I'm showing you that church practice, as we experience it today, goes against the word of God. Where the church went wrong in regards to the early church fathers is that once it had the completed New Testament, it should have tested everything by the New Testament and rejected that which went against it. They didn't. And when I put it like that, most Christians say, yes, naughty church. So why, why stay in churches that still aren't testing everything by the word of God and rejecting that which doesn't square up to it? You see the point? We can't say, oh, naughty Israel for their anti-biblical traditions and oh, naughty church fathers for their anti-biblical traditions and then carry on observing all the anti-biblical traditions. That is completely inconsistent. And you see, the thing is that part of the hypocrisy of Israel is that when Jesus came along and demonstrated beyond all doubt that Israel was wrong about all their traditions and stuff like that that went against the word of God, the real hypocrisy is that the leaders, rather than say, hey, this guy's right, we've got some repenting to do, rather than acknowledge and admit that it was they who were going against the word of God, the approach they took with Jesus was to try and make out as if he was the troublemaker going against the word of God. That was their approach. And I have to sadly tell you that mostly when existing churches get wind of what we're talking about here, normally the response is, that whoever is speaking about it is considered to be a troublemaker. Now I want to tell you, I have shown you through the best possible scholarship, I am merely telling you what the Bible teaches. Do you remember our quote from the Mishnah a couple of talks back? Let me remind you of it. It is more punishable to act against the words of the scribes than it is the words of the scriptures. 
you remember that quote? Do you remember our other ones? Uh, the, the other quote, give more heed to the words of the rabbis than to the words of the law. Now let me quote from the Mishnah of Christian opinion. It is more punishable to act against the words of the Christian status quo and establishment than it is the words of the scriptures. Give more heed to the Christian leaders of the day than to the word of God. That's where we're at. We've been here for 16, 1700 years. But I'm just saying, it's enough. It's enough. There came a time when people realised that the gospel wasn't even in the church anymore. And people like Luther and Calvin said, enough, enough. And we hail them as heroes. Because they, they got back something from the word of God that had been lost. Indeed, very salvation by faith in Jesus alone. And we say they're heroes. At the turn of the century, though I have great problems with much of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, nevertheless, at the turn of the century, people began to realise that the gifts of the Spirit, we need to get them back. And they said enough. We need what the Bible says. And they were right. I know many people still think they were deceived, but there are many of us who say, great, we hail them as heroes. Now what I'm saying now is enough of having unbiblical churches. Let's finish the Reformation. We got justification by faith back. We got the gifts of the Spirit back, though it's still a bit messy. Needs some work on that one still. Let's get the church back too. I'll tell you what the charismatic movement did. It took pretty dead, powerless, unbiblical churches. And it turned them into powerful, spirit-filled, unbiblical churches. <laughs> I'm just saying, can we be biblical now, please? Let's just finish this process. Now, I want to answer some of the criticisms that are put to me in, in the years, I mean I've been at this trying to persuade people since the mid 70s I've persuaded 15 in England so far in <laughs> 25 years, so we're getting there everyone else threw me out and said I've gone you know, off the rails but let me cover some of the criticisms I've had and answer them this is a big one. Well, Beresford, God blesses these so-called deceptions. I mean, God blesses these so-called unbiblical churches. Well, let me answer that. Of course he does. I mean, God in his grace will bless anything he can get his hands on. And I'm very glad to say, including me, because the fact that God is a God of grace and the fact that we've got Romans 28 there in everything God works together for good to them that love him and accord according to his purposes means that if we didn't have a God of grace it would mean that God would only bless me when I was fully in order with him I'd never get blessed 
the definition of the grace of God is overcoming abounding sin. And if God wasn't the God of grace, none of us would be saved. So of course God blesses unbiblical churches. He will bless whatever he can get his hand on. And he will bless his people because he loves us. But look, this thing about God blesses unbiblical churches, he does, but listen to this. God spoke through a donkey to Balaam. But I'm not going to start bringing a mule to the Lord's Day meeting to see if prophecy increases. (laughs) Indeed. God, in his grace and mercy, will use anything he can get his hands on. But we must understand that Scripture is clear that everything must be tested by Scripture. The final authority is not, is this person or is this thing being blessed? The question is never, does it work? The question is, is it biblical? I can look back on things and shenanigans in my Christian life that God has really blessed. And as I look back from advantage of being a little bit older in the Lord, I shudder with horror the sort of stuff I've got up to sometimes but God has blessed it but I would hardly argue oh well it must have been right because God blessed it what a stupid argument because the point is if you're going to argue well it must be right because God's blessed it you've got churches over here saying this is the way and look God blesses us and you've got churches over here doing totally the opposite saying this is the way God blesses us they can't both be right but God blesses his people but here's the point Here's the point. If God blesses anti-biblical practices, when we realise and repent of being anti-biblical, how much more is he going to bless us when we've got biblical practices? So what a daft argument. God, yeah, we're going against the Bible, but God blesses it, Beresford. <laughs> well, of course he does, but get biblical, man. Now then, people say, yeah, but Beresford, God's led us this way. I mean, God led the church. Yeah, there's, there, there's what the apostles did, and yeah, we can, we can see that. But can't you see, Beresford, the Holy Spirit, he kept evolving the church. He kept leading people. So the early church fathers and different ways, of, hey, you know, the Lord is leading us. So if the Spirit's led us this way, Beresford, can't be wrong, even if it's unbiblical. Well, let me tell you that, this. If, if the Holy Spirit leads against the Bible in anything, you have no test for anything either. If the Holy Spirit leads against Scripture, why is perhaps the single greatest repeated warning in the New Testament against false teaching? How do you know if a teaching is false? Because it goes against the clear revelation in the Bible. So how can the way the church be set up be based on teachings that go against the Bible but which are of the Holy Spirit? Do you not remember we saw with Israel's tradition of the elders they came up with a system that went directly against the word of God whilst claiming that God led them to do it. That's what the Christian church is doing. And you see the thing is if you believe that the Holy Spirit can lead you apart from scripture then the position you were in is this. You read the Bible and you pick and choose. You pick and mix. 
And you say, yes, I think that bit is inspired. I'm going to go with that. No, I disagree with that. I think that was just Paul and the culture. Now then, if you decide which bits of the Bible apply and which don't, I'll tell you exactly who your final authority is. You are. You are. It's as simple as that. And if you do believe that God goes against the scripture in regards to churches, then on what basis could you, if you discovered you were sitting there and suddenly there's a brother and a sister sitting next to you and you discover they're living together in sin? You've got nothing to say to them. Because all you can say to them is, hey, that's wrong. How do you know it's wrong to live in sin? Because the Bible says so. You couldn't know otherwise, could you? I don't have a hotline to God. We only know that immorality is wrong because the Bible says so. So if you have Christians in sexual immorality and you say, that's wrong. That's all you mean, it's wrong. I'm at peace about it. The Lord led us to move in. Hey, we're, we're so happy. And you say, no, cannot be. And they say, why not? They say, well, the Bible, the Bible says it's wrong. And they say, well, yeah, but the Lord led us. You say, no, couldn't be, the Bible's wrong. And they say, well, the Bible teaches that the Lord's Supper should be a full meal. Here we are, about to have bread and wine. Do you see what I mean? You can't, you can't say, hey, the Bible says it, therefore that is it in some things, and make excuses in regards to other things. If the Bible says it, it is God's word. So this, this thing about God inspired these traditions. No, he didn't. They go against the word of God. He could not possibly have inspired them. God never leads against the teaching of scripture. Now then, a third thing that people say to me is, oh, yeah, but Beresford, you can, you can make the Bible say what you like, can't you? Well, if that's true, let's all ceremoniously tear our Bibles up now, throw them away and go and find pizza or something. You can make the Bible say exactly what you like. That's bunkum. I have shown you that the best scholarship available is totally clear about what the Bible says about all these things. It's an excuse. It's an excuse. It's smokescreen. And this thing about, oh, you can make the Bible say what you like, is another way of saying, no, we can do what we like, and it doesn't matter what the Bible says. That's, that's what it's really saying. Look, is, is, is the Lord in his sovereign power... So confused, so befuddled, so poor at communication that he can't even get a book to us that is black and white and totally clear on the thing that matters. But again, I say as we've seen, no scholar doubts that what I've said to you is absolutely true. It's crystal clear what the Bible says. The issue is whether or not we're prepared to do it. So no, you can't make the Bible say what you like at all. You can only do that by drastically quoting things out of context, which isn't then saying what the Bible says. And as I say, the scholars are in agreement on all this. None of this is my opinion. None of this is my slant. This isn't an interpretation about what the church should be like. This is black and white. And if you ask the question... What were the churches like that the apostles planted? How did they function? Where did they meet? What did they do? 
the answers are there black and white and any scholar will tell you so none of these are good reasons to keep quiet they're, they're all given to me to say Beresford look stop stop teaching all this stuff I've had people say oh, Beresford you, you have such a you know an okay Bible teaching ministry what, why have you gone and spoilt it by doing all this and I say well because I've got a Bible teaching ministry I mean, what do you want the Quran this is what the Bible says it is what I'm supposed to be teaching all these are excuses. Now, let me make something very, very clear. The basis of our fellowship together as believers is that we're following Jesus. That is the basis of our fellowship together. The basis of our fellowship together is not agreement on secondary matters to that. And however important I believe how you do church is, in fact I would say it's probably the second most important thing in the universe, following Jesus is the first. But nevertheless, it is secondary to being a child of God. And on that level, I couldn't give a monkey's what church you're part of. You're my brother, you're my sister. We can have fellowship together. And not just to argue about church either. And let me make it very, very clear. On these issues, we fall out with no one. And I can honestly say, I have never fallen out with anyone over these issues. Sadly, many Christians have withdrawn from fellowship with me. And that saddens me. That saddens me. But for those who have an open heart have wonderful friendships with believers in the Catholic Church even though I believe the Catholic Church is as deceived as you can get if I find a believer in the Catholic Church they're my brother and sister and I'm not just going to spend time trying to rescue them from the Catholic Church we have far more in common in Jesus than we disagree on on matters of church but that doesn't change the fact that this is still something that must be put across to people. But I'm not going to fall out with anyone. And that's important. Sometimes people have said, yeah, but Beresford, okay, I've come out of churches and I'm part of something a bit more biblical. And they say, but Beresford, there are, you know, what do I do about the people in the church I left? And I say, what do you mean, what do you do about it? You carry on as normal, don't you? I mean, you visit other churches, can't you? I mean, just because just, just maybe you leave one church doesn't mean you can't have fellowship with people in it. There's no question, you know, of saying, oh, not having anything to do with believers in unbiblical churches. You know, I've told you what the Bible says about church now, and if you don't go home and do it, I don't want to have fellowship with you. No, it's not that at all. We're just saying, nevertheless, this is tremendously important. Now, another a thing that has been put to me and in fact once I mean I, I would have said amen to this so this was exactly where I was in, in the early years of my Christian life this whole thing about press we've got to renew the churches from the inside don't come out don't start new churches we've got to renew churches from the inside so stay in there change them from the inside make them biblical from the inside now that's what I used to believe the problem is that I realised eventually that I'm back to trying to make a triangle have four sides you cannot, 
Now, you can talk about renewing churches. Now, if you want to speak in terms of renewing a church, say you're in a church where people aren't baptised with the Spirit, and so you get people baptised with the Spirit, so the gifts of the Spirit there. If you want to call that renewal, well, yes, you can renew a bib- uh, an, an unbiblical church. Because it's a, a, an unspirit-filled, unbiblical church, and then it becomes a spirit-filled, unbiblical church. You, you've renewed it. But if that's what you're talking about, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about biblical churches. All right? Now, biblical church will have the gifts of the Spirit. Although I wouldn't get tremendously excited. I have fellowship with biblical churches here in America where they think I'm nuts to speak in tongues. But it's secondary. We don't fall out about it. But the point is, you, 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 you can't make an existing church biblical from the inside. And I'll tell you why. Take a Catholic church. Take an Anglican church. Take a Presbyterian church. Take a Baptist church. Here, pick a church. No, no, don't tell me what it is. Pick a church. Any church you like, right? Now then. And we're going to make it biblical. I'll tell you what the problem is. In order to make that church biblical, it's got to renounce everything that makes it that particular church. No church left. All you can do is march out, start again. If everyone comes with you, great. If the pastor comes with you, great. He can resign, go get a job, and just be one of the guys. And if in the future he's led back into something full-time, fine, okay, but you see what I mean? You can't do it. You've got to come out and start again. What do you do with the building? No, it's logically impossible. It's no use saying, hey, we're going to make this church biblical. Right, what sort of church are we? Oh, we're a Baptist church. Right, okay, yeah, Baptist church. Oh, yeah, 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 we've got a building. That's got to go. Oh, okay, right, yeah. Uh, hey, I'm the pastor. I've got to go. Oh, yep. Um, okay, right, now then. Lord's Supper is a full meal and open worship. Oh, crumbs of worship's got to go. What are we going to do next Sunday? Oh, I know, it's just meet in a hundred homes. Let's see what happens. You see, you can't do it. You've just got to come out and start again. The day has got to come when we realise that the wine is not going to go into the wrong wineskins. You've got to get the right ones. And the ones we got are the wrong shape. We've got to get the right shape wineskins. Jesus said that. So no, this stuff, I mean, you know, from the inside, no. No, no, no. And then the last thing, and this is what people normally tell me. <laughs> they tell me I'm rocking the boat and being divisive. They just say I'm a troublemaker. Yeah, well, that's right, that's right. I mean, some of the people have called me this. I mean, I'd worry if they liked me. Do you know what I mean? But think of this, though. Here we are talking about representing what all the biblical scholars agree the Bible says about something. And for doing that, you're labelled a troublemaker. Do you remember what I said? How the Jews tried to dispose of Jesus. Rather than admit that what he was saying was exposing their error, they tried to make out that even though he had scripture on his side and they didn't, they tried to make out that Satan was using him and that God was using them. And they just tried to brand him a troublemaker, they accused him of everything under the sun that they could think of, just desperately trying to discredit him so no one would listen to what he was saying. And it is sinister... It is sinister when you're put in a position where people are saying what you're saying is biblical, we're not saying it's not, shut up. That's what we're up against. That's what you find. I have to remind you, 
it is more punishable to act against the words of the scribes than the words of the scriptures. Give more heed to the words of the rabbis than the words of the law. I'll bring that up to date again. It is more punishable to act against the words of the Christian status quo and establishment than it is the words of the scriptures. Give more heed to the Christian leaders of the day than to the word of God. You know, it is expected of us by the powers that be, the evangelical, Bible-believing, fundamentalist, charismatic, ecumenical status quo, that at the end of the day, you don't rock the boat, you just accept majority opinion, and outside of that you keep quiet because we don't want to know. Regardless of whether what you're saying is biblical or not. And let me tell you again, no serious scholar would challenge that what I'm saying is biblical. There's no disagreement about that. And when you get Christian leaders ranting and raving against it as if it is unbiblical, it's simply because they themselves are not properly taught in the Word of God. There are many, many Christian leaders who still labour under the illusion that the early church had pastors. In the Bible, has it ever occurred to you why Paul's letters to Timothy, two letters to Timothy and one to Titus, has it ever occurred to you why in our modern Bibles it says the pastoral epistles? Because people think that Paul was writing to pastors of churches. They weren't pastors. They were apostles leading churches temporarily until those churches had their own pastors, elders, bishops. And then they moved on. That's how deep the deception goes. But those who really know the New Testament would not challenge one word I've said about what the Bible says. What they would challenge is they would say, Beresford, it's okay for us to do it differently. So that is where the disagreement comes in. So what has Satan done? He's done the same to us as he did to Israel with the tradition of the elders. What Satan has done is he has the Christian church pretty much, by and large, based on teachings and practices that not only don't come from the word of God, but which actively go against it. And he has got us doing this under the claim that God himself through church history, led the church to do it. And I'll tell you, it is extremely inconsistent when Christians who are unhappy about the charismatic movement, and I am very unhappy about many elements of it, and one of the things I'm most unhappy with in the charismatic movement is precisely the idea that the Holy Spirit can lead people into practices and ministries and teachings that don't come from the Word of God. And I'll tell you, across America and across Britain and probably across the rest of the world, there are leaders of churches who don't believe in the charismatic movement, who rail against it because it claims to have inspiration and leading from God that goes against the Bible and they condemn it. 
And yet they are leading churches that go against the Bible in every facet of their lives. That's incredible. Now I will say the charismatic is, uh, movement is wrong to have the idea that the Holy Spirit can lead you other than what the Bible says. But I apply that to the church as well. We have no more right to be part of biblical churches. Sorry, we have no more right to be part of unbiblical churches than the charismatic movement has to introduce ministries like healing of the memories and stuff like that, which is based on modern psychology and doesn't come from the Bible at all. And one of the things that the charismatic movement asked me to believe is that God is moving most powerfully, precisely, amongst those who are the least biblical. And that's why I cannot accept the charismatic movement. I'm quite happy with the baptism of the Spirit, I'm quite happy with the gifts of the Spirit, but rightly understood and biblically ministered. But in exactly the same way that I cannot swallow that, I cannot swallow either the idea of unbiblical churches for exactly the same reason God has shown us how he wants us to be when it comes to being churches and in exactly the same way that Israel ended up going against the Old Testament yet with the claim that God led them to do it I fear that the Christian church for 1700 years has been doing exactly the same thing. We are going against what the Bible talks about and speaks of in regards to church, but we are doing so as if it's absolutely okay to go against the Bible and the Lord himself doesn't mind and indeed has led us to do it. <coughs> so what does it boil down to? What really matters, I suppose, is what people do now they've heard this. I'd be the first to say I've put you in a very difficult situation. Because for those of you who didn't realise all this, the Lord didn't hold you responsible for it. But now you know. Now you know. <coughs> when you did your unbiblical thing last Sunday in the name of Jesus, you did so sincerely believing that he was pleased with it. And with your sincerity... And with the fact that you were doing it unto him, he was pleased. But he didn't like what you were doing. But he didn't hold you accountable for that, because the chances are it would have never occurred to you in a million years that there was anything unbiblical with your church set up, whatever it is. Tragedy is, well, it's not a tragedy, it's a wonderful opportunity. But now you know. Now you know. And now the Lord does hold you responsible. I don't ask you to accept one word of what I say because I've said it. Indeed, I would ask you, go from here and do your best to cut me out of the picture entirely. Your only interest is to ascertain, is what I've said correct? Right? That's all I'm interested in. And then forget about me. But you've got to struggle with wow I think he's pretty much shown us that he is right and not because it's me you see the point is I've just shown you that all the scholars are agreed 
So this isn't some new revelation that I'm claiming. The Christian scholars have known it throughout church history. I'm just saying let's do it. Let's go back to the scriptures we started off with. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm going to read verse 2. Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Now I've shown you not just what those traditions are. I've shown you that all the Bible scholars know what those traditions are as well. What those traditions are is not in question. What's in question is whether or not we do what Paul said or whether we do something else. Go to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 2. And verse 15. So then, brothers... Stand firm and hold to the traditions we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Now, whereas all that covers far more than how you do church, it also covers how you do church. And in regards to church, I'm sure in the rest of your Christian lives you are indeed holding to the traditions that Paul taught. I'm talking about in regards to our churches. Now let me tell you, I can stand here and before God and before man, I can say to you, in regards to what a church is, I and my brothers and sisters who are part of the same church, we are doing this. We are standing firm and holding to the traditions that Paul passed on in regards to what church is. Can you say that? If you can't, then there's something here that needs looking at and very, very radically. Go to John 14. This is the brass tax. Do you have that phrase here when it comes down to the brass tax or the nuts and bolts and all that? Here's a nut and bolt. And a lot of people think I'm a nut for what I believe about churches, but at least I'm screwed onto the right bolt. John 15, sorry, John 14 and verse 15. Now listen to this. Uh... Oh, sorry, yeah, John 14, verse 15. I was in the wrong chapter there. If you love me, this is Jesus speaking, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, dealing with matters of how they were conducting themselves when they came together on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, first day of the week. 
He said, if anyone is spiritual, let him recognize that what I am saying to you is the command of the Lord. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, I'm no prophet. I hear the Lord sometimes and get it right. More often I get it wrong. Years ago, the Lord gave me what I believe is a word of prophecy. And it's a word of prophecy that I know he wants me to give to anyone present on the right occasions when I'm addressing these things. You test it, don't take anything from me. But I believe I've heard the Lord say it. I believe there are other people who have heard it from the Lord and all I can do is pass it on. But Jesus is saying, give me back my church. That's what he's saying. It's his church. And I'm saying, let's give it back to him. I'll end it there. For more information, contact the Chigwell Christian Fellowship on our website at www.house-church.org.